0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of the Womenhood and International Relations podcast. I'm your host, Natalia Bonilla. And today we have a very special guest with us. Her name is Claire Hutchinson, advisor on women, peace, and security and former NATO Secretary General Special Representative for WPS, as well as vice president of the consultancy agency TOLMEC. Claire, thank you so much for joining this episode
1: thank you it's uh, it's really my pleasure to be here and uh, oh, always lovely to speak to you
0: I'm very excited for our conversation today because there's a lot to uncover about what's happening with the Ukraine-Russia conflict and all the issues related to WPS. And I want to start this conversation with you basically inviting our listeners to learn, know more about the type of work that you do and your experience, which is quite, quite remarkable. Can you share with us a bit about your lines of work?
1: Sure. Yeah. So um, I am. I, I call myself uh, an arch and and uh, and and long term feminist. Uh, being feminist from birth, I think. Um, but I've worked on the women, peace, and security agenda almost since the, the adoption of the first resolution, thirteen, twenty five, and two thousand. But prior to that, I used to work in technology, helping women use technology and understand technology uh, for for empowerment purposes. So I've had a long background and commitment to women's rights and and advocacy on women's rights. Um, Over the last uh, 20 odd years, I've worked uh, with the UN Department of Peacekeeping uh, in many missions deployed on working on peace and security and gender equality. And the last four years working with NATO on the same Um, um, But primarily, in that case, from a defense and security uh, point of view, as opposed to a more humanitarian or more global um, politics. And so today I'm working as an advisor to a number of nations um, on their gender policy, a number of organizations and NGOs, uh, and working to uh, help support uh, furthering of the gender equality agenda um as well as women peace security but i also work on human security which is uh, conflict-related sexual violence and cultural property protection and and how do you protect people and properties and uh, and social cohesion in times of war which which as today we see is critical uh, with the Ukraine crisis. But not only that, it is uh, uh, something that across wars, as we know, women and men are disproportionately impacted by. Um, So how do we uh, address all of this in the middle of and post-conflict?
0: Claire, I wanted to ask you about WPS, because we've been seeing a lot of um, accounts of Ukraine and Russia conflict, specifically in regards to uh, sexual violence used as a tactic of war in this country, and also about refugee migration, human security being tossed out the window, rave human rights violation, and even the conversation of a possible genocide taking place. Um, To start our conversation, I want to ask you: um, What's your general view of what's happening in Ukraine and Russia? What's important to keep in mind at this point?
1: So, what I think we shouldn't—we um, should never fail to forget that this is not the first, nor will it be the last war. Um, we have seen over, even almost recently. In- in ethiopia the continued war you know the aggression happens in yemen um we have seen wars in the south sudan and and constantly throughout the, what is happening in Myanmar. that this is not new and the rape and the brutality in conflict is not new what is different of course uh, for us right now is that it's happening in a european context so it's right for in the euro western atlantic uh co- construct of how we see geography it is happening near us. But the the idea that women and men have, for years, been targeted differently, um, have, have been uh, marginalized in the discussions of conflict, um, have suffered differently, and are subject to different requirements, different norms, and different expectations is something that's constant. Uh, what we're seeing today, what I believe we're seeing, is that there's an increased attention on women than we've seen before. And this is, I think, come out since if you compare the media narratives from 20 plus years ago with the Balkans conflict, um, what we're seeing is much more of a pivot towards women, peace and security and women and children than we have seen before. But does women, peace and security mean it's been centered in this conflict? No, absolutely not. Um, And I think that the idea, some of the narrative that's been used is, is, can be quite harmful in the essentialization of women Um, and, and that we're seeing this quite a lot, but recognizing women's voices first voice in this conflict has grown so we see a number of the women correspondence, the the online the blogging the 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 discussions um even the women's own network that's been set up um to highlight what is happening are things that have constantly taken shape around the world in conflict but not to the extent that we see today and to the to the the length um and breadth of 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 conversations about women in conflict, whether they are agreeable to me or not, whether I believe in some of the ideology of this or not, but it's still happening, yes.
0: Is there a reason why WPS is not taking center stage?
1: Because it never does. I mean, women, peace and security is not taken seriously. It still isn't taken seriously to the extent it should be. And I think we're seeing this play out in the conflict of why it should be. Uh, When you have policies that send women with children, uh, you are delegitimizing their political agency, women. The idea that women have been sent away and men have to stay in the country, absolutely. And I'm not being critical of of anything to do with Ukraine or Ukraine's policy. But in terms of a gender lens, in terms of a one-piece and security lens, that has sort of pushed back the idea that uh, women are beyond just the mothering or beyond just the essential biology of women, um, because many women are choosing to come back and fight and women want to fight. And I think the idea for me, conscription uh, is 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 not a gendered thing. It, it is, but it shouldn't be. And that, you know, women and men should be expected in the same way and want to in the same way in many cases to defend their nation. So I think women, peace and security in the context of women being safe, women being protected versus men as protector, is a little difficult uh, for for me to see. Um, And I think in terms of women peace and security and our sort of outrage of rape as a weapon of war, why are we outraged? This isn't just happening here, this has happened time immemorial. We should be outraged at everything that happens and everything that's happening in women, we have policy after resolution after policy after resolution on what we could do to prevent and to address, and yet we're still seeing the same repercussions in war, in conflict. Um, I am, I am heartbroken, as we all are. But you know, we could look at this in a gendered lens and see where have we gone wrong. Could we understand more from what women were saying in the east? early on, and if we'd listened to women, which we tend to not do in international community, could we have picked up early warning signs of what was happening? I believe yes. Women in Afghanistan were telling us certain things we didn't listen to. Women are telling us all over the world certain things. So I think, you know, what we do need to do is take stock of of the lack of women, peace and security that we've applied to this conflict and how we have not seen it in this light. Um, We prepare, on both protection of civilians and women, peace and security, we are giving to training tools. We're doing capacity building. We are preparing. We have resolutions. We have, you know, the, the the whole of the the range of tools, and those tools are supposed to ready us for when there is a conflict. I don't quite know what <laughs> where we get lost in that, and so I there has been a bit of a struggle. Um, and I think there has been a bit of a struggle, even in hearing the, the narrative coming from women in a way that we would expect in women, peace and security. And yes, I get it. In the middle of war, it is very easy to stand out and be critical. It is very, very easy for me to not be Ukrainian and to say this is what we should do. And that is not what I want to do or will I do. But what I can say is that I am a little bit I am questioning a little bit. women peace and security has not been applied and the things we know haven't been brought into focus during this conflict and i hope we can shape that a little bit in in how we do protection not only in the middle of the theater of conflict but as women are coming away to other nations How are we putting in place protection for them? The trafficking that's taking place, the the women left alone without any resources. Um, When you come from a traditional society, as you know, and you're left without any money and your husband remains behind, what are we doing um, to support and, uh, and encourage empowerment for them at that point? So I think there's a lot of questions that will come out of this that need to come out of this as well.
0: And I think one of the key issues, I mean, you already have said, is the part that the WPS is not being taken seriously, but I would also add this element of the level of impunity. Like, you know, we had all these protocols and these international mechanisms, such as responsibility to protect and, you know, human security standards and policies that somehow doesn't get translated on the ground. And, you know, it can get lost in uh, importance. At the international level, all these talks sound beautiful, but then when crisis hits, they are tossed out the window because we are, you know, who has the power at the battle of the gun? Like they don't care about international law. And I think that's something that we are seeing very present in Ukraine that is, uh, I mean, from my point of view, is scaring a lot of women worldwide because if this is happening in Ukraine which is like part of Europe or considered to be part of the Euro-American center of sphere of power. Like, you know, what is left for those of us that are, you know, living in the global south or in other countries that are not considered, you know, important in a way. So um, I would like to ask you in the, in the case of Ukraine, what makes it so special that the international community is giving so much aid, defense, you know, so much attention and what are the, the, the needs that are being, not they are not being met in this case. Well, I think, it, as I said at the beginning,
1: for many of those living in the North Atlantic European um, environment and uh, uh, landscape, it's because it is in our backyard. Right? This is the first time in terms of a, a let's say Russian aggression within our own neighbourhood. Now, it's not the first time because there was Syria and there are many other interventions. But it's come and, and and very similar to what happened in the Balkans. Balkans, you know, Rwanda happened, and and then we had we had Bosnia, very very close together, and yet the mobilisation and faster mobilisation to Bosnia in a way than it was Rwanda was because it's it's not here. Some have called this a bit of a racist war. <clears throat> I'm not subscribing to that. I don't believe that to be true, but I do believe that the proximity to being near us and looking like us and, and, and being part of our community um, has certainly taken a different shape for the viewing of this. When something is in an African context, it is too far away for us, and I say this you know lightly, but I'm I'm genuine, it's too far to, to care about. You know, it's over there, and this isn't over here. And this is, of course, you know, a, a, a P5 member. Uh, who is uh, a, a part of this or has instigated this this uh, this conflict? Um, and you know, Ukraine. Many people know Ukrainians. Uh, I have myself have been there four four times. Um, you know, have people I know there. Many people have in Canada is has one of the largest. Uh, settlements in terms of, of, of immigrants to Canada from Ukraine. So we all are sort of knowledgeable about vaguely the area or about people or we know of or we can feel some kind of compassion with that where we can't in others. But this is also very frustrating when you are a person who works in international relations because like I said it isn't the only conflict. It isn't the only place where people are dying and suffering. And so yes we have to be seized of this but we have to also question our humanity more globally because if we are going to be urged by this the atrocities that are happening then we have to be urged by the atrocities happening elsewhere and we cannot pick and choose when we become humanitarian we cannot pick and choose when our humanness kicks in and says okay we we, we must be pulled at this but nah, no maybe not at that and so i think it should should shock us into questioning ourselves as humans and our response as international community to this Um, just because something is near you doesn't mean it's more important in fact in a way it could be you know those that are further away we need to educate ourselves more but i think in terms of conflict related sexual violence i just want to go back yeah Um, we are we seem to be more shocked about it in this context than we are in others Um, in any place in the world where there's conflict, conflict conflict-related sexual violence has been used. And I had a very strange conversation with somebody recently who said, but the rape that's happening is not conflict-related sexual violence because it's just soldiers raping. And for me to have even that sentence strung together, the idea that, oh, well, this is what happens in conflict and this is what happens and, and, and soldiers do that, is really beyond my consciousness. We, I thought, stopped that conversation with the adoption of resolution 1820 in 2008. Mm -hmm. I thought we had evolved from that. But it seems that there is this sense, it is appalling and it's abhorrent, but it happens. And we should be beyond that. We should be saying, never, one woman is too many women. And that if you're a soldier or you're a shopkeeper or you're, it doesn't matter who you are, in the context of anything, be conflict or not, the power over through rape and the destruction of a woman's body should never, ever, ever be allowed. And I think we still struggle with putting this on the same scale as genocide, the idea that it's just rape as opposed to it's torture and it's inhumanity and it's other things where we would contribute to genocide. I believe in terms of how people talk about it and how I listen to it, there is this disconnect. Um, And we have to change that. We have to change that because the rape of woman is the destruction of both her body and her society. And so we have to get beyond um, this language that diminishes this act.
0: I think it's also the normalization of that type of behavior and that type of acts is like, you know, it's bound to happen because it's been happening for over centuries and centuries. It's like, why you know, we are keeping normalizing or saying, you know, excusing the behavior of soldiers when, you know, it's been proven time and time again that they don't do it necessarily to only hurt women. they are doing it also as a objectivization method, as a way out also for male bonding between, you know, the soldiers. Like there are many dynamics at play that get reinforced and patriarchal values that get reinforced using sexual violence as a weapon of war. And, you know, it's, it's, it's mind-blowing that we have all these mechanisms in place that when a crisis occurs, it seems, at least from this international response that we are seeing in the past few weeks, you know, it's going to change probably in the future, that, you know, it's not enough. Like, it's like going back tracks or, you know, we to old ways. What makes the WPS agenda not being taken seriously in this specific case?
1: I don't think it's in this specific case. I think it's generally that while we, we, we do the nod towards gender equality and, and as the world, we take the boxes and we're saying, oh, yes, this is really important now. But I don't believe we, and I think this is a case in point, we don't really understand it. If we can't change gender norms prior to a conflict, then we see those exacerbated in the conflict. And we've seen this, the gender norms that have been played out by the men who may be encouraged to rape as soldiers, um, by the women who are expected to care for the elderly and the sick and the old. These are harmful types and stereotypes or harmful norms that if we don't break them down in any kind of given situation when it's a peaceful context, then it just gets worse in in conflict and and it's so easy to go back to what's comfortable Um, there will be an increase in violence against women around everywhere. And I think you will see this in other nations bordering as well. Um, as you take in more refugees and economically its hardship, we see uh, intimate violence against partners increase. We see that the the level of of malnutrition and starvation of women increase, and therefore the, the you know the illness and then and then women's expectations and roles and who looks after who, we see frustration increase. And this is not just within the context of Ukraine; it's the bordering nations too. Um, and then you have the you know the the connections with militarization and what happens there um, with soldiers who have you know, who have PTSD and then the outcomes of that, or women who see trauma, who have nowhere to go because nobody will give them any support. So the the roll-on effect of all of these um, conflict-related events or chain reactions We're going to see more and more. Now, if we've taken Women, Peace and Security seriously, instead instead of just saying, oh, this is about deploying more women or this is about increasing numbers of women or this is about hiring more women and really understood what was the nexus between Women, Peace and Security, gender equality and peace, then we would have had a better platform on which to roll out and, and support all of this work. I think generally we talk a lot, but we don't do a lot. I think we, we, we don't match words to action. And I think we, we have got up very lightly by saying, uh, uh, applauding, well done, well done you, well done the organization, well done nation, well done you know, company, because you have talked about gender equality. You've recognized Me Too movements. You have said the right thing. Um, but what have we really done? Really, what have we done? And how far have we got? Because if we can, if if our principles cannot stand the weathering of this conflict and we recognize we have to stay true to them, then I think we haven't done enough, if anything. And I, I am very harsh about this and very critical about this because I have seen a lot of conflicts through my my career and I have worked through a lot of this with with women who have suffered gravely. And it frustrates me because I feel like we just keep going around in circles. And I am tired for women everywhere. I am tired that they have to go around in circles and justify why either their agency or their protection or the, the prevention of any atrocity against them is important. Why should we have to keep doing that? Surely we should be at the point where it is just ingrained in our actions, uh, equality, gender equality, and 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 women peace and security
0: yeah, that's something that we talk about in our podcast, which is embodying what we are, you know, preaching about, like, how can we stand, you know, or, you know, advocate for feminist values, if we are not looking in our own home, in our own relationships towards one another, whether we are engaging in those feminist values, too, because it's easy to ask for the state, or to ask the other to change for us, or to change the world for us, but we may be reproducing the same, you know, harmful behaviors, or, you know, Inequalities within our own relationships, with our partners, with our communities, or with our work environments. So it's important that we start, you know, creating this shift of mindset or shift of mindset where we. Advocate if we want, once again, if we want to advocate for gender equality or for WPS, start looking within, you know, where are the areas within our own experiences where we are condoning violence or where we are, you know, reproducing violent behaviors or vice versa, you know. Um, I wanted to ask you in this case of Ukraine, we saw specifically with um, the calls of uh, Zelensky's uh, president. You know, asking the international community to intervene, asking NATO to intervene. There's been a lot of red lines, quote unquote, from Bucha to Mariupol to the mass graves reports to the sexual violence used as a weapon of war to even the use of possible chemical weapons in Ukraine. Why there has not been an international community response to these human rights violations and also environmental disasters too?
1: Yeah. I, th- I, I think there is a there is a response. I mean, the UN has already got human rights monitors in. There's already tracking and uh, the violations, and a lot of the UN agencies have remained on the ground. Um, in terms of uh, some some an organisation like NATO, NATO, when you're a, a, a member of NATO, when you're one of the 30s, they have an ally. Then there's a you know bound to support in terms of the the articles and the delivery of the articles. Uh, um, But Ukraine isn't and so it's a partner nation of where they have invested a lot of money, a lot of support and and as I said when I worked in NATO I was in Ukraine four times and working with supporting uh, gender in defense and gender in the the security sector, Um, but it's not a feasible for NATO to intervene. First of all, all 30 has to agree, all 30 nations have to agree. And, and secondly, because it's not um, an, an ally, then there isn't an obligation. Now, the idea is, and, and this is what, as the international world would understand, that if NATO, as they've been told very directly by, by Russia, if NATO gets involved, it would be basically a tantamount to de- declaration of war more globally. And there's a fear of that. And this is one of these horrible, almost humanitarian conundrums. When I, many years ago, used to do, uh, I trained in, in humanitarian relief at one point. And there was this paradox. They would put up this problem say, you are traveling down a road and you, there's a child that you could save. But if you save that child, you will not be allowed to go into the village and save the other children. Do you... Forfeit all of the children for the life of one or do you forfeit the life of one for all? And as horrific as that is, and uh, I have spoke to women who came out of Syria and walked across um, the mountains in Lebanon to get into Lebanon when I was deployed there. And there's a woman told me about leaving her child who was dying in the mountains to save her other three children. I cannot imagine making that decision i cannot imagine being in that position and what and how that can break you but this is it's very similar to that that do do we put the rest of the world in a place where we'll be at risk to any kind of conflict including nuclear or do we just support individual individual nations and we continue to do relief efforts and i don't know I am glad i'm not in that position to have to decide because i i think i am too emotional yeah. to make a decision that would be rational when i see what i see today but um, those who are m- more intelligent than i will be making these decisions um, what i do know is that not having humanitarian corridors is is a breach of international human rights law that the sexual violence in the middle of conflict for women or men is is basically the same as a crime against humanity and I do believe that targeting and I know that targeting of civilians if proven to be correct is a crime against humanity. We can do more right now. Um, we, We do need to do as much as we can and we need to make sure that where we talk about our humanitarian commitment we really are putting that forward what i worry about and this is a lesson from syria 11 years on the longer the, the conflict in ukraine plays out the less interested we as international community are we have a very short window of interest and and you can already see it um on social media and you see it in the news where it was only about that and now it becomes maybe the second story or the third story and that the the, the rape of 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 citizens doesn't become as as abhorrent as it once was and that they have no food and they've been starved out of maripol isn't as 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 bone crushing as it had been and i worry about that because having seen and worked in this industry for, for for many years there is an apathy that starts happening and like i said it becomes a litany of other it's a Yemen or an Ethiopia or a Myanmar or a South Sudan that we see now that may not happen because it is in Europe Um, but I certainly know when it comes to people's uh, finances what you're willing to pay for in terms of fuel um, at the beginning of the conflict may not be the same in six months yeah Um, so I think we have a a future a a very short-term future which is going to be worrying um, how we move forward. And at what what point does our humanitarian center still remain at the forefront when our financial and personal uh, issues come come, next to that?
0: There are a couple of things I wanted to uh, uncover here because I feel like there are many topics related to what you just said. Um, specifically uh, connected to the many conflicts and the short attention span that we have. Um, one of the the areas to explore is like, we um, interview in the podcast Devon Khan, who was the women's rights advisor for uh, Refugees International uh, previously, in a previous episode. And I was asking her whether she considered the international community being weakened by COVID-19 pandemic. And, you know, like suddenly uh, human rights protection was, you know, tossed out the window because there were other present things in terms of global health and other crises around the world, right? And she was saying that it was not necessarily weakened, but, you know, we were losing focus on human rights and about morality and about, you know, democratization of values or, you know, seeing a progressive view of stand. And somehow we are seeing the rise of authoritarianism and other ways of governance that are very oppressive to peoples, and we are also seeing the prevalence of international security over human security, and that is definitely affecting the worldview of leaders at this point. But then on the other realm, I wonder about us as spectators of this type of conflict, um, you know, being on the news. Because as you were sharing, and I am very grateful that you shared the complexity of these type of decisions. It's not so easy to say, "Oh, let's invade and let's intervene," and it, it can definitely have incredible, ram- uh, um, how is it, uh, ramifications to worldwide. <laughs> it already has global dimensions, but. It could increase if we go into a full war, um, which is the part of media and whether us as spectators of this conflict, are we playing a, a role or a part in, you know, long in creating it long lasting. Um, I was reading this book by Susan Sontag, which is called uh, Regarding the Pain of Others. And she was basically having this hypothesis that not everybody was meant to watch war on TV or these images of brutality because it could leave people, first, on a sense of hopelessness because we cannot do anything on what's happening there. And second, which is the part of, the, those that need to make the decisions are the ones that have the tools to actually create change. Us watching it worldwide, we perhaps are creating this imaginary of it needs to be solved quickly because we are tired of watching it on the news. <laughs> Second, we, you know, feed this notion that the international community is not, you know, the UN is a joke because it suddenly is not doing anything. Like, that's the the... Simplistic view, of, I'm saying, of course, is more complex than that, but it's a simplistic view. And, you know, it's creating this. Uh, perhaps my question here is how can we, as listeners of this podcast, that perhaps we're different parts of the world, watch this conflict unfold and any other conflict unfold without feeling hopeless?
1: Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, they call it the CNN effect. And, and it, I think one of the first places ever was uh, um, Vietnam, Vietnam right, when yeah. it was televised. And and we all got to watch as where war had been very much. Yeah, the, 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 the sort of for those who were there, they were the only one experienced. Now, of course, I think this is the first war in a way that's been uh, that's been captured by social media um, in a way that never had before. Um, and someone was saying about the Bosnian conflict, if they'd had social media back then, they wouldn't have had the siege of Sarajevo, which had an anniversary only the other day, um, because it would have been you know, addressed. Now, I think one of the the one of the things about social media and about media itself and about people's desire to get all of this information is one, it, it can lead to this understanding and outpouring of support, as we've seen for money for Ukraine and you know songs for Ukraine or whatever, and that people start realizing, oh, there's something terrible happening and this is, you know, we must be involved. But I think one of the downsides is that we don't tend to read a lot. We don't tend to understand a lot. So we are emotive and we are shocked and horrified as we should be, and we're demanding answers, but we don't read enough to understand what is the context and 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 pushing and i think this is the same with civil society and activism pushing for change and pushing for something is really critical but it has to be informed by intelligent argument and understanding of the context and i think we we should push more for international organizations to say why are they not responding so to understand nato can't really re- you know intervene but Why can't it intervene, why can the UN, someone asked me why wasn't peacekeeping getting involved, well peacekeeping has to be invited by the government to set up a peacekeeping mission, which is after the peace has been agreed to, there is no peace so obviously it can't go in, but I think unless you, you are informed of these decisions, it is very hard to see why, why they are stagnated in a way that they can't respond. Now that doesn't mean we as individuals, as listeners, as as those who are passionate humans, shouldn't keep saying to our government representatives, what exactly are we doing? Because I think that is where we as civil society get a chance to get some power into directing the future. Why are we not doing more to give humanitarian aid? How much of our money is going there? How much money are you spending on weapons versus how much much you're spending on health? Um, I think these are the questions we should demand and push forward. Now, one of the concerns is, as we do move forward, and this is where interested participants can be involved, is when we start talking about increasing military spending. If we're starting increasing military spending um, at the cost of humanitarian human security actions, then it's a problem because and this will be an output of of this conflict the idea that we need more defense okay possibly and we need more defense in terms of of you know hardcore uh, military tools but where do we get that money from that money should not come out of health and humanitarian and the idea that we see People dying and suffering and there's no medical and there's no food. Well, that's a human security issue. So we cannot jeopardize and put this sort of individual understanding of military security, the industrial security over that of human security. And this is where we can all be involved. We can demand of our representative. We can talk and say, please give me the answers on this, but not in a way that we say we have to intervene and we have to stop this war. But okay, let's say it is as it is. What can I do? What can I do to move accountability? What can I do to push um, that once this hopefully and soon ends, what are we going to do to help reinforce the nation? Or what are we gonna do to help reinforce human security? Um, And and how do we have more accountability on terms of fragile states or conflict of those nations moving into conflict? what conversations are we going to have? And are we gonna make sure women are in those conversations? Because they have a lot to tell us. Um, And when it comes to reconstruction of of Ukraine, I am challenging everyone to make sure that women are at that table and that women are talking about where we failed and what more we can do because uh, their voices will not be silenced in this, absolutely.
0: There's this sense that in Ukraine, the failure of the wps was prevalent from the beginning of this conflict like when we saw for example in january but before this conflict was uh, started um when we saw the munich conference full of all men and then we saw all these negotiations or the first negotiations of ceasefire between ukraine and russia all the tables were you know from russia and Ukraine side full of men um so also with the depiction of women as victims of war and as the ones that are, were fleeing the country and the men were left behind to fight, like there was this sense that WPS was not being reinforced from the beginning. Um, I, I know we are short on time, but I have like three last questions that I want to ask you two related to this conversation. Is it possible that the WPS agenda is stagnated at this point? is the Ukraine-Russia conflict an example of how WPS agenda is not being enforced, period? And second to that question is, how does NATO view WPS? Because I think that's also a a critical component. People think that WPS and NATO believe the same as the UN, but I don't know if it's the same vision of how they would enforce it.
1: Well, and, and very quite simply, again, my point of view is that when peace and security has stagnated, I believe we're talking the same trite, tired language that we talked about 20 years ago, I very much appreciate and, and I respect and, you know, I revere the women who started this uh, fight Um, the women who created uh, the push for resolution 1325 to be adopted when there was nobody listening to women's voices in a conflict situation. But that was 22 years ago and we have changed, the world has changed. If we keep talking about having more women uh, in deployments or having more women or having more women, if we keep talking about parity over and over again, while it is important, It isn't the only thing and it isn't the most important thing because a lot of women could be at a table and they don't represent women's views because they're part of the patriarchal structure. They're actually against other women. So it's about changing our system and our thinking of system. And Women, Peace and Security should be about how do how are we integrating the understanding, the language, the rhetoric, the logic, the, the strategic planning in terms of conflict so that we can we can do best we can do our better work and, and and as I said sending women away with children is not women peace and security um, it may have been many years ago but today as we also see the women are coming back many of them to fight you want to have a resilient society women and men should fight for it equally you want to have a resilient community women and men should be equally involved children are not only born through osmosis or through one person, they have two parents, they have a man and a woman. And so they're both responsible for these children. So, you know, these things have to change. We have to recognize that the world is different. Um, Cyber security and, and climate change and technology, um, all of these security risks to us, education and health, the, the pandemic, You know, when the pandemic first started, as you'll know, we didn't even have equipment, PV, uh, preventative equipment for women because it was all made for men. Um, in some countries in the world, there are no military uniforms for women because they think only men are going to fight. And whether you believe in armies or not is irrelevant. The point of it is that women have to have the opportunities, should have the opportunities, and must be included, whether they want to be. And if they choose not to be, that's okay.
0: But so is that yes? there's like this fear, like, for example, with the sexual violence used as a weapon of war and considering that that's like so normal in conflicts that, you know, people fear that that's gonna happen. And that's why that's the first response, like perhaps like an instinctual response of let's flee before that happens because, you know we need to save our women, you know, like, I don't know if that's like a rationale.
1: I think I think in some you know when I worked in uh, one peacekeeping mission they made a, a um, there, there was a an ordinance that was made to say that women can't work at nighttime, um, because th- they're at risk and I said. Why did you ask the women if they wanted to not work at night time? They said, no, 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 we're protecting them. So, but it's not your right to decide what I'm protected from. It's my right to decide, one, if I should be protected, and two, if I wanted to be protected. And I think this is the problem. The idea that it's so, you know, this norm about, well, I am going to protect you. Well, have you asked me if I want protection? Because that is the key, right? And this narrative, and I don't believe it is about that, because I believe it really is about the power over and, uh, and and change. When you let women let and I use that loosely, when women become part of every other structure where it power becomes inversed, then it's terrifying. And the only reason we we as the world keep women out of anything is because women can be frightening because it means they're taking power and you know, when you have power, you don't want to let it go. So the idea that we should protect women, hmm, well, who's asking for that? And if women say, yeah, protect me, that's different. But don't do it on my behalf. Ask me what I want and don't tell me what I want. And I think we do this as, a, as a, almost as international organizations going into communities. We tell, the interna- we tell those communities, this is what we're going to do for you. They never ask for it. You know, we have this sense of arrogance, and there's a sense of almost male arrogance. And yes, let's let's protect women. Well, you know what? Let women decide what they want, and then you can do it. Um, and so that's why I think the women peace and security agenda has to get a little bit more vocal, and those who are working it about about standing up and saying, but we're not all the same. I do believe in a military, a strong military, but I am a feminist. I don't have to be anti-military to be a feminist. We can all be many things. But let's not go down that rabbit hole of arguing with each other, because what we should be arguing with is the patriarchy. We should be arguing with those who keep us down. And that is where we have to put our focus, not against each other, Um, We can all find our own way to getting to equality, but we have to support each other. And on NATO, NATO applies Women, Peace and Security very differently. It has a policy, it has an action plan. And when I was there, I was very um, adamant that we we created a language manual to change language. We created many things um, to try to get the understanding that this wasn't just out of area operations, increasing number of women in national militaries, which... it it seems to be that's a popular thing. Um, But putting it into artificial intelligence, how do you change algorithms so women are also represented? How do you make sure defense spending also takes into account what women want? What sort of defense spending do they want? What sort of defense do they want? And I think NATO is on the verge of it, but I have a fear that, that we may be, it may be pushed back a little with what's happening in Ukraine, given that it's about traditional defense here. Um, the UN sees it very differently in that it is a, a much more uh, global view of women, peace and security. But again, in peacekeeping, it's all about deploying women. Women, you put more women in it that makes a difference. And I don't think it does. So I think we have been derailed in all organizations by the gender parity conversation because it's easier. You can count women and say, oh, look, I have 50 women and 50 men. I've done my work. And that, we all know, is not what it's about. We all know that that can be very dangerous. So I think international organizations need to take this moment in time to really question themselves. This is something they don't do very well. They don't admit failure. They don't admit mistake. And they don't question. And so I think they should. They should all be questioning where are we not doing this right? Where are we going wrong? And, and be willing to adapt a new way of thinking by through that questioning process, because you know, I, I applaud all the international organizations I, where they've gone with this, including NATO who's worked very hard over the last few years to, to get a different mindset on it, but it's not enough and it's certainly not fast enough. And there is so much more to be done And I worry that will be sidetracked by what's happened in Ukraine.
0: Yeah, and I think with the fact that the UN as well as NATO are international organizations made from member states. And that also weighs in because not all member states are, you know, agreeing with gender equality norms or with the westernized vision of democratic values and you know. The deconstruction of the patriarchal mindset so i guess that that is one of the challenges <laughs> that are left as well for international civil society organization or you know feminist organizations to you know push for the needle on those type of conversations that need to be had so states can at least get a sense of agreement or you know a new way of looking at society as a whole in peace times and in conflict times
1: yeah yeah, I mean, there should be, you know, I believe that, for example, in NATO, this is, it's easier because it's small as 30 nations, yeah. but you know, and I do hope uh, at some point that accession to, to NATO would include fundamental and comprehensive um, agreement on what is women, peace and security, and if you're not implementing this, then you don't become a member, but as the EU would do as well, and, and I think, you know, with the UN, if you want to get on the Security Council, You have to demonstrate that you have committed to implementing gender equality, you are calling the shots on all security for the world, and you could be also a a nation that is disputing women's rights or pushing back against women's rights, I find that absurd. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you know, change, if it will ever happen in institutions, takes a while, I, I know. Um, but I don't think we stop even though we get tired and I don't think we should stop calling or shouting for something, even though it may never happen. Um, I saw uh, this morning a little video clip of a, it was a toddler, a little boy, um, and it was five, say, teenagers doing a race and he, he, he joined the race starting off. Now, they had shot off before him, <laughs> but he still continued to run. And I thought that is what it's like. That's what women peace is like, you know, you're probably not going to get to the other end quickly, you probably may not make it, but you're still going to run that race. Because if you don't, other people are watching. Mm-hmm. And, and we cannot stop. We cannot stop, we have to keep, you know, putting our feet forward, running the race, and hoping someday that we get to the end line.
0: That's incredible, Claire. I think that's also a great analogy for the feminist journey because I think it's never ending. You always get, you know, working and milestones and achieving little by little one day at a time and growing as a person and as a community. Um, Claire, I wanted to ask you for the last question for today. Um, How can we follow your work? Where are you based? Like, Share a bit about your upcoming events or campaigns.
1: Great. Well, I am... Working, I have um, uh, just actually returned from Geneva. I was doing something with decaf in Geneva, but I, I do a lot of work with different organisations. And um, uh, soon I'll be working with uh, the Swedish Defence uh, uh, College. But I, I don't have. A, I have an event uh, coming up with uh, on Genads on gender advisors with Monash University. So I will post that up on my uh, LinkedIn and on my Twitter uh, accounts. Um, you know, I'm one of these old people that um, have taken slowly to Instagram and still don't know what I'm doing. and twitter, i'm I'm stumbling through it um so yes bear with me as 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 this old woman of technology um back with my typewriter um but i have a linkedin and i do encourage anybody i post a lot of um articles and a lot of thoughts about things on linkedin and also on my claire wps uh twitter account so um i'm happy to also engage people on this subject more and i hope i know we will be engaging more um because I think the more you talk about this, the more we, we get this message out, the more we can engage each other, the the faster we can turn the tide, right? The faster we can make people change the way they think about equality and women's equality and world peace security. and security. And that is my vision in life is to always has been to, to work on this. And as I always said that I had been blessed by having an education and by having a loving family and that my life has been a one of privilege in a way. And so I want to use that to speak when others can't speak and to use a platform to speak out when others can't do that. And that I think it is our responsibility to each other as women to speak out when our sisters are constrained. And I think uh, I look forward to doing that wherever I can. And, uh, and I look forward to being part of the journey with you as well um, as we move forward.
0: Yeah, I invite everybody to tune in and check all the links that we are going to post on today's episode for you to check Claire's work and, you know, continue following the journey. Thank you so much, Claire, for your time.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you, everybody. And, uh, and we'll talk again, I hope. Yes.
0: That's it for today's episode. I want to invite everybody to share their feedback, their comments on our different social media networks. We are currently on Twitter and Instagram at womenhood underscore IR. You can also follow us on our Telegram channel and join our Patreon community to continue supporting and growing together. We definitely appreciate your time and your interest in our platform. Thank you so much for tuning in. Talk to you soon.